0: My guess, actually, is that as far as countries are concerned, I don't think we're going to see a significant amount of unbundling. I just think it's unlikely that enough regions or people will find it truly in their best interests uh, to do that. The advantages of being one big country are very considerable in large part because of military factors. Uh, if you're a big country, you have a big economy and that enables you to have a big military. And, you know, so you can really be a very influential player in the world. Turning that one big thing into a bunch of little things leaves a lot of little players who are really at the mercy of the big players. And so my guess is. That despite the protests in Barcelona and other places, I don't think we're going to see a big unbundling of nations, as you say, 20 years from now or 50 years from now. It just seems unlikely.
1: If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I'm constantly working at coffee shops, Starbucks, constantly on the go. That's how I do my best work. I can't stand being at home. And another thing I can't stand, not having enough screen space. That's why I'm super pumped to tell you guys about a game changer when it comes to working on the go. Sidetrack, a second dual mount monitor that hooks right onto your laptop so you can use it in Starbucks, in the car, anywhere. Pops on incredibly easy. Studies show you're 24% more productive when you have a second monitor, saving up to four hours a week. I know I don't have a ton of hours in the week, especially now being a dad, and having An extra screen, the ability to flip back and forth between them, incredibly powerful. If you've ever worked with two screens, you know just how valuable it can be. And that's why we're pumped to have the Kings of Multitasking sidetrack as sponsors for today's episode. If you travel, you're serious about work, serious about getting stuff done and being productive, which I know you all are, you guys should check out an awesome discount they have for our listeners. For a limited time... You can get 10% off by going to sidetrack.com, that's S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K, there's no C in there anywhere guys, sidetrack.com slash discount slash disruptors. Again, that's sidetrack, S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K dot com slash discount slash disruptors to save 10%, be more productive, and optimize the way you work. I'm firmly of the belief that you're either learning or dying. And when people get out of the education system, they don't have much else to learn. The average American reads like a book after graduating, like a book, not multiple books a year. And that's terrible when it comes to Alzheimer's health performance, but also happiness and up-leveling yourself. That's why I'm so excited to tell you guys about our new partner, Brilliant.org. This is a company completely flipping the expensive, excessive memorization education system on its head. Whether you want to program Python Learn algebra or calculus, quantum computing, build neural networks, or like me, just want to up-level your logic to be the next Sherlock Holmes. Brilliant is the place to go to learn math, science, and computer science, and actually have fun in the process. One of my biggest goals with this podcast is to inspire more of you guys to go for it with your dreams. And I can't think of a better way to do that than by giving you the skills needed to build and change the world. Whether you're listening to one of our space episodes and want to figure out the actual science behind launching one of these rockets, or you're interested in AI or quantum computing and want to learn some of the ins and outs to get into those fields, brilliant.org is the place to go. To support the podcast and learn more about Brilliant, go to brilliant.org disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. And sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link get 20% off the annual premium subscription. And know that you'll be supporting us in the process because our advertisers, in addition to our patrons, are what help us make this podcast sustainable and long-term successful. And with Brilliant, especially, training people to be their best and to change the world in the process. Brilliant.org slash disruptors for more details. Do you meditate? I know I do. And we've talked about it a ton in the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. If you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash Qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors and now let's get on with the program welcome to the disruptors the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies trends and societal norms shaping our collective future Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If you like trade wars, technology, and the future of the economy worldwide, you're going to love this one with Jeff Colvin. He's Fortune Magazine's senior editor-at-large. He's an award-winning thinker, author, and broadcaster. His work's earned millions of loyal fans and 7 million weekly listeners on the CBS radio network. He's the author of four bestsellers, including Talents Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everybody Else, and Humans Are Underrated on the Future of Work and How Humans Fit into the Workplace with Robots and Smart Tech. He's appeared everywhere from Today, Good Morning America, Squawk Box, CBS, the ABC's World News. Moderated panels with Jack Welch, Richard Branson, the Prince of Wales, Bill Gates, Alan Greenspan, both of the Bushes, and many more. And he's somebody who's got a lot to add to the conversation, especially when it comes to global geopolitics, which we'll discuss in today's episode when we break down the U.S.-China relationship and why we're already in a Cold War, Jeff's thoughts on the decentralization and breakup of big tech, why Jeff is skeptical of long-term centralized economies, i.e. China, What does Brexit mean for the economy, really? Will AI be net positive or net negative, also on jobs? And a public market debate about incentives, timeframes, and a way to design a better society for all of us. This is an interesting one where we get into somebody who has a lot of views on the matter and has spoken with some of the best of the best. I know you guys will enjoy this, so when you do, make sure to share it with a friend. It's the most important thing you can do for the disruptors, and for me personally, is Give us a major high five by sharing it around so more people discover our work, join our movement, and just maybe think about the future a little bit differently. And if you haven't followed me on Twitter, at MattWard.io, you can find me on there. I post mainly great stuff that I found around the internet. So if you like the podcast, I'm sure you'll like that as well. Twitter, MattWard.io. And now, without further ado, I give you Jeff Colvin.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So I've heard you say in some of your talks and most of your talks, actually, you like to kick your talks off with three headlines, three things that have been happening in the day. What's happening today and why is that?
0: (laughs) Well, when I do it in a speech, I prepare ahead of time. uh, In fact, I sometimes spend a lot of time. I get up really early in the morning because I insist that they be, you know, real headlines From that day, not the day before, because I want to make clear that what I'm talking about is uh, absolutely current. So, so, you know, if I'm speaking early in the morning, I have to get up really early in the morning. Of course, I can do some of it the night before because the newspaper headlines are already online the night before nowadays. But uh, so anyway, but I, of course, I didn't know you were going to ask that. So I have no idea. But I mean, if you think about what the big headlines are on this day that we're, uh, Talking, I mean the the big news headlines uh, are about the Middle East and uh, U.S. withdrawal of troops and so forth, very newsworthy. Brexit, uh, it may be that uh, Parliament uh, approved the Boris Johnson Brexit deal today, although I'm not clear on it because I haven't checked. But it sounds that way, you know. Not that that means it's a done deal, but anyway, there's that. Uh, and you know the, the and the impeachment inquiry you know, the whatever the the latest is on that and they seem to be re- recalibrating their schedule those are the top headlines uh today you know do they have a lot to do with the sort of longer term bigger picture things that i talk about not especially i mean certainly um everything having to do with brexit, brexit and trade generally you know, and the economy. Well, I do talk about the economy a fair amount. The other things, you know, it, there are actually you can tie these things to larger trends. So, for example, what's going on in the Middle East, where the latest—well, there, there was the forming a government in Israel, and we'll see how that goes. But of course, the the larger story for the last couple of days has been withdrawal of American troops. What becomes of the Kurds and so forth? And if I had to put that in a bigger picture context. I'd say, you know, the Kurds are an example of a big trend that is not just applied to economies or countries. It's the the trend towards disaggregation, deconglomeration. So the Kurds want a country of their own. Well, also in the past week, there's been news about Catalonia in Spain wanting a country of its own. There's a lot of speculation having, you know, tying it to Brexit and so forth, that uh, if Britain really goes through Brexit, Scotland may want to separate itself from Great Britain. Uh, In the world of business, deconglomeration is a big trend. We see lots of companies breaking themselves up. Dow and DuPont combined themselves into one and then split themselves into three. United Technologies splitting itself into three companies. Activist investors wanting AT&T to split up. Over and over, we're seeing this trend of taking apart things that had been put together uh, a long time ago and with a lot of trouble. There is this disaggregation trend that is everywhere. And there are good reasons for it. But I'll stop there. That, that, so I, you just made me make up a, a, a sort of three headlines and what are the big trends, but it's not that hard to do.
1: Yeah, we got our three headed dragon. And I've heard uh, smart Didn't, folks say the only way to make business and uh, make money in business is bundling and unbundling. It sounds like we're going through <laughs> one of those unbundling phases in the world.
0: That's a great point. That's a it is an it is absolutely a big unbundling phase and you're right these things do seem to go in waves. There are conglomeration waves and now there's this bigger picture unbundling wave and we are absolutely in the midst of it. Governmentally, how do you think that'll
1: play out? In 20 years do we have net more net less or net less governments than we do today? China's fighting to stay on board. Um, Many would argue the U.S. should be multiple countries. A lot of other (laughs) places are pushing for their own interests. What are your thoughts, especially when the governments typically have the monopoly on the use of arms?
0: Yeah, right. My guess, actually, is that as far as countries are concerned, I don't think we're going to see a significant amount of unbundling. I just think it's unlikely that enough regions or people will find it truly in their best interests uh, to do that. The advantages of being one big country are very considerable in large part because of military factors. Uh, If you're a big country, you have a big economy and that enables you to have a big military and, you know, so you can really be a very influential player in the world. Turning that one big thing into a bunch of little things leaves a lot of little players who are really at the mercy of the big players. And so my guess is that despite the protests in Barcelona and other places, I don't think we're going to see a big unbundling of nations, as you say, 20 years from now or 50 years from now. It just seems unlikely. What about big tech? Well, there we could very well see unbundling and disaggregation. It, you know, it, it, it's going to require a complete rethinking of why that used to happen. I mean, they're not going to take themselves apart anytime soon. We see a lot of big old companies like GE and United Technologies, which I mentioned, taking themselves apart willingly or unwillingly. But that's because they were in big old industrial businesses and it never really made sense for them to be all part of one thing. Uh, and investors finally had enough and said, you've got to take this thing apart. The economics of technology are really just completely different. You know, costs, the marginal to extra costs don't go up for Google as it gets bigger. They keep going down. Uh, in traditional economics, that didn't happen, but in information economics, technology economics, uh, that does happen. Their costs just keep going down the bigger they get, and so their average costs. And so uh, I don't think they're going to take themselves apart. And it's hard to apply antitrust law because it's very hard to show that anybody's being hurt by this. You know, consumers use Google for free; they're not being hurt. And, you know, advertisers, well, they're buying advertising for less than they have ever been able to buy it for in history. It's hard to say that they're being hurt. Now, you could make arguments, of course, that, well, people would be still better off if they had a choice of search engines, and advertisers would be still better off with a choice, but the antitrust rules aren't written that way. so. I You know I wouldn't be surprised to see some some of these tech giants broken up, but it's going to be a big, big effort on the part of government legislatures, voters to make that happen. It's hard to see it happening soon, even if Elizabeth Warren wins.
1: I think in some cases, actually makes sense for them to break themselves up. If you look at uh-huh. you, yeah, YouTube, how much would YouTube be worth? If it was yeah. a separate public company, same thing with Instagram, same right. thing with Amazon Web Services, also just right. to get themselves out there. But I want to double click a little bit on something you said earlier that yeah. the economics changed when it went from industrial to information. And my, right. qu- my question for you is when that shift happened, it seems like everything flipped. Is that when the trickle down effect truly died?
0: Well, uh, that's an interesting question. The economics, uh, let's just think about that. The economics I was thinking about were the idea that, you know, you know, in a big industrial company, when you start making whatever product you're making, uh, the cost of making one more goes down as the company gets bigger and bigger, right? You can build a huge factory, it makes a zillion cars, the cost of making one more car, it gets very low. But- after a certain point, it stops getting to be less and it actually starts to be getting more again because running the factory is difficult and when it gets really big, it's hard to manage. Moving stuff around inside a huge factory is a big pain. It becomes less efficient and so the cost of making one more sort of bottoms out and then at a certain point, it starts going up as the company gets bigger still. Well. That's just not the case when you're making a Microsoft Office, because making one more costs essentially zero, no matter how many you make. And they, they, they'll they make billions of them. But whether they make one billion or five billion, the cost of making one more copy is essentially zero. So this is a completely different uh world. That, that's one reason. The other reason the information business is different, of course, has to do with network effects. And Facebook is the world's greatest example of that. But we can come back to that. I mean, I'm intrigued by your question about trickle down. Because something's
1: uh, cl- clearly changed. We've gone from a yeah. linear world to an exponential world. And yeah. inequality has clearly increased as a result.
0: Yeah. Well, I- inequality has has absolutely increased and there's no way around it. There have been so many explanations, theories, hypotheses about why this should be. My own view of this, just having read so many of the explanations, uh, it comes from a couple of labor economists at Harvard, uh, Lawrence Katz and Claudia Golden, who've been writing about these issues for decades. And here's their theory, basically, through the whole 20th century, technology advanced requiring more advanced skills on the part of workers to use that technology. While the technology was advancing, educational attainment, as they say, was advancing, meaning people were getting better and better educated. You look at the average years of school completed, it went up and up and up through most of the 20th century. So technology was advancing, requiring better skills. At the same time, People were getting better skills because they were getting more and more education. The result was a very steadily and strongly rising standard of living, a decrease in inequality. After the nineteen, it was pretty high in the nineteen twenties, but from there to the nineteen seventies, you know, inequality decreased. And what? these two economists noticed was that the level of education stopped advancing in the 1970s, but technology didn't stop advancing. And so what has happened since then is that technology keeps advancing, requiring more and more advanced skills on the part of workers, but people on average are not getting more and more education. The result is that the few who have the education to operate today's more advanced technologies do very, very well. They're, they become more and more productive because that technology makes them more productive. The people who don't have those skills are necessarily falling behind the ones who do. And since our overall level of education isn't advancing, that inequality starts to increase and gets greater. And in fact, if you look at the charts, the 1970s is when inequality started to rise again. And so if they're right about that education uh, theory, uh, and it sounds pretty good to me, then it's, a, it's not obvious what the, uh, what the solution is. But I've gone on long enough on that cuz I think you have some views.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say I almost have a complete flip-side uh thought on that. It seems Great. like what people are getting more and more education. We have education inflation where you needed a bachelor's, now you need a yeah. master's, now you need a PhD cuz the government right. the government put out essentially super cheap loans with the GI right. bill and colleges right. were like, "Oh my god, free money." Students right. were like, "Oh my god, I can go to Harvard." And parents were like, you should go to Princeton because you know what your yeah. neighbors go into Yale, and everyone's yeah. in on a, a little bit of a Ponzi scheme where the students are getting screwed in the end, and there's not jobs lined up for their quarter million dollars of debt. It's um, yeah, I would say it almost feels like we're getting more and more education. I right. I I think that I think that point that you had about the changes between input versus information being. Uh, exponential change is, is really relevant. Also, when the capital gains, they, they flip-flopped capital gains and salary-based or based, uh, taxation, essentially, once it became cool to store your money somewhere and uncool to earn money, both of those right. two things became quite challenging for an average worker.
0: Right. Uh, could, you, could you just expand on that for a second? Because I, I, I want to make sure I understand. Which part? Um, well, about uh, the, the the very last part you were talking about.
1: Yeah, um, capital gain capital right. gains used to be taxed much higher. Salary used to be taxed much lower. But right. then I, I don't have the exact dates. I want to say it lines up somewhere around the seventies, actually. But right. Um, right. venture capitalists went and said, "Look, if we're going to be investing in investing in the future, we've got to have the risk reward ratio, so to speak, to make it happen." Right now, capital gains are what ten percent. And Bezos, ten or twenty, yeah, yeah, and Bezos played, long-term capital. You know, yeah, The top four hundred families pay less in taxes than the the bottom four hundred families, in, in America, in terms of percentage, and that's purely based off of earning money sucks and owning money is incredible when it comes to taxation.
0: Yeah, there, there is. Uh, uh, I've seen different arguments on that, but it's certain because well, uh, anything involving the U.S taxation system uh, quickly becomes uh, painfully complicated but yeah, i have seen ar- arguments on that but uh, what is indisputable is that is the pain-
1: you know, if, is the painfully complicated the problem though when you have rich people making the tax laws they write the loopholes oh, for themselves and their friends
0: well i mean there's there is that although um, uh, you, you could argue that the painfully difficult is just that it's so unbelievably complicated And uh, but, you know, and it is it's insanely complicated and I don't see that ever changing. But, yes, the the taxes on uh, capital gains are lower than um, taxes on ordinary income for people above a certain level of income. That is true. And, um, you know, it's. it's certainly, and there are, I mean, there are arguments among economists across the political spectrum on what's the most efficient way to do it. But I think your point that uh, people who, uh, you know, are already wealthy clearly have more influence in the uh, creation of the uh, tax laws.
1: Yeah, it's hard to get somebody to take away their own benefits, so to speak.
0: Well, there is that. There is that. Although, you know, there as I say, it gets to be complicated. I mean, if you look at the number of or the percentage of people in the US overall who pay income tax at all uh, on net, meaning one of the uh, social support programs, one of the redistribution programs we have in the United States is the earned income tax credit, the the so-called negative income tax. So if you look at the percentage of people who you know, A, don't receive the negative income tax and B, don't pay regular income tax. It's a fairly substantial proportion of the U.S. population, like half. And so uh, by many measures, the U.S. system is quite redistributive by some measures, more so than some uh, countries in Europe that we think of as being very redistributive. But it's a different system. So it's it, look the inequality thing is a huge issue and it's a big problem a uh, it's a big problem but it's not that easy to explain in my experience of trying to look look it over it's uh it's it's a big problem with a lot of moving parts
1: now to play devil's advocate Jamie yeah. Di- Jamie Diamond and his pals had uh they they had the big okay maybe we want to stop focusing purely on shareholder yeah. maximization cuz we've all seen the cartoon where the world's up in flames thanks to yes. incredible profits. But yeah. in terms of that, is that what in your opinion is happening? And I know you have certain reputations etc to uphold, but is that <laughs> is that the is that the nature of what we're seeing is people realizing, "Oh shit, we can bulletproof our Teslas or we can try to fix the problem now?"
0: Well, uh I, I did study that uh, statement from the Business Roundtable, which is the one you're, what you're referring to. Uh, the Business Roundtable is this organization's been around for many, many decades, and it's essentially the CEOs of the 200 biggest companies. Not It's not precisely that, but it's essentially that, CEOs of the 200 biggest companies. And people might not have noticed because they did it in the middle of August, but they uh, issued a statement on uh, the purpose of a corporation, which the roundtable has issued over the years at various uh, intervals. And this one made a lot of news because instead of saying the duty the, the, of a corporation is to serve the shareholders, it listed five stakeholders and said, uh, you know, we're, we, we pledged to do these things for these five groups of stakeholders. And they listed them without specifically ranking them. But nonetheless, the shareholders came last on their list. My view of this is that it's symbolically important. The statement was symbolically important. Substantively, nothing changed. And that's important to realize also. They had some very good lawyers looking over this statement before it was issued. And I've spoken to some of them. And They actually assure me that the law hasn't changed about the duties of a corporation to whom a corporation owes uh, its duties of care and uh, the fiduciary duty. And it is symbolically important that they did this at this moment, but it it doesn't change. It doesn't actually change anything in my view.
1: How do we go about changing it? And what a good analogy be to human beings and sugar in that we've evolved beyond the need to seek out as many calories as possible, but we haven't right. evolved beyond the need to feel like we need
0: it? Right, right. All of the evolutionary traits that were intended to help us survive – when getting enough calories was the big problem, turn into a big problem when getting too many calories is our big concern.
1: Have we evolved beyond Milton Friedman? Is his model almost irrelevant now?
0: Well, I, I Milton Friedman is is a very popular villain in all of this. I do believe he was misunderstood, but but here's the issue: what that. What the roundtable said was, you know, we will do this. I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, we will do this for our customers. You know, we, we And it's all wonderful stuff. Of course, We will do this for our customers. We pledge to do this for our they customers. Window dressed it. Yeah, this. Well, well here's the thing, though. I, all they were stating, in my view, is stuff that is simply good business. It's stuff that any w- well-managed company would do just because it's good business. Of course, you're going to take care of your customers. Of course, you want your suppliers to be healthy enough that they can continue to supply you. You know, you want the communities in which you operate to be grateful that you're there because you know, they're governments. They can do stuff to you. You want them to be happy too. You, you, you want, you know, you, and of course, you want the shareholders to be happy. Taking care of all those stakeholders is nothing more than good business, and I'm all in favor of it. But it's nothing more than good business, and to see that, I, I have to tell you, over the years, I, I, I mean, I do a lot of speaking and moderating at conferences and stuff. So over the years, I have moderated countless panels on stakeholders versus stockholders, corporate social responsibility, and all the relevant, all the related uh, topics, and. So, I, you know, I, I listen to the different points of view on the panel, and I say, okay, are you saying that I, 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 the, the proponents of corporate social responsibility, which I'm all in favor of, I, I say to them, look, so are you saying that a CEO should be ready to stand up and say, today, we are taking this action, whatever it may be, that is going to reduce the long term value of this corporation, but we're doing it because it's good for the employees. Is that what you want to hear a CEO say? And inevitably, they say, oh no, 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 not at all, because if you take good care of the employees, you'll increase the long-term value of the corporation. And I say, okay, then what's the argument? What is is your point? All you're doing is arguing about the best way to maximize profits. And then they don't like that. And so we end up with a discussion that kind of goes nowhere. So it, it's, it, I, I'm still waiting for someone to say so, uh, that we should have a system in which a CEO can stand up and say that. And I, I'm like I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting. But what do you think about it?
1: I think in some way we need to redesign the system because the system Mm -hmm. that we have is -hmm. incentivized towards something that is not sustainable long term. Which is? Well, capitalism is perfect in a state of, in a state of shortage, but we don't live in a state of shortage. We live in a state of abundance. That's just Mm -hmm. simply not what it was designed for though.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure how we effectively do that, but I know that, I know that the system we have today of even the emphasis you put to, on having the headlines from today and not yesterday is prob- yeah. is problematic in my opinion because mm. we need to have longer term views than oh, yeah. a day, a minute, a quarter, stock stock trades happening on a microsecond for us to be able to build towards something better. We need to have less trading, not more.
0: Well, I, I, I agree that um, there are plenty of managers who – are very short term oriented and I would say irrationally short term oriented and and that's a problem. Uh isn't that the nature of I,
1: humanity and of the market though is that it is irrational and short term minded?
0: Well, I don't think the market is irrational. What I think is that the managers who claim that they have to be and I hear this all the time. They'll say, "Well, you know, I don't want to manage quarter to quarter." But the market, the investors, Wall Street, will massacre me if I don't. If I miss my predicted earnings per share this quarter by a penny a share, uh, the stock is going to plunge and, you know, so I can't do it. Uh, but I th- I don't think they're correct. I think they're making excuses for their poor management. The rationale, the the, the logic being that there are plenty of examples out there of, Managers who refuse to manage for the short term. And the investors not only don't punish them, but reward them very, very well. I don't think it's really a question of whether the market demands short term performance or long term. I think the market, on the whole, uh, does a good job of evaluating what a company is planning to do. And if they're massacring a company's stock, maybe it's because. They don't think the company's plans are very good. I haven't heard anybody say I, 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 I haven't heard anybody say that Warren Buffett manages for the short term. I haven't heard anybody say, for that matter, that Jeff Bezos manages for the short term. He does the opposite. For years and years, he didn't report any profits, and the stock kept going up. He wasn't managing for the short term. He was managing for the very long term.
1: But to do that, you've got to pull off the God complex. You've got to convince (laughs) the world you're smarter than they are.
0: Well, I'm not sure what you mean by that.
1: Well, we've got we've got Bezos. Zuckerberg pulled it off until everyone started to hate him. But he's got a super voting share. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Same deal he's the whatever of wherever he's got his nice little title for for most companies they're not able to do that without having that incredible vision that's why i mean if we're being cynical that's why elon musk cops on twitter and tries to act like the second coming of jesus he's is incredible he's transformed the world he's transformed so many different industries but once you start to lose that that veneer so to speak which he's lost lately because of such and such happening suddenly the market stops believing in the individual the charismatic jesus and Mm -hmm. suddenly crucifies you Mm -hmm. and that's what we've seen happen with tesla that's not what we've seen happen with bezos we haven't seen much of anything happen with facebook because it's like a plague you can't get rid of but in Mm -hmm. terms of in terms of companies in terms of performance so much of the market has nothing to do with the company it has nothing to do with future profits it's a game of gambling, and you're gambling on people.
0: But do you think then that it's all just smoke and mirrors and PR that uh, uh, that investors are looking at?
1: Well, you, there's investors, and then there's the market at large. I think
0: well, that that's, it's that's investors, though, isn't it? It's the it's investors writ large are the market at large, right?
1: But there there's there's specific investors that are going in. There's managed hedge fu- there's managed hedge funds, there's index funds that are just looking at averages. There's folks like you and me that might open up a newspaper and then there's people in general who maybe I put a little bit of stocks here, I put a little bit of stocks there because those are the companies I know and use. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think that there's as much intelligence in the markets as we would like. Mm-hmm. And I think that the intelligence that's there has a short-term mindset because their incentives are based off of short-term performance. They're based off of the here and now, plus their 2% management fee.
0: Well, it's certainly true that money managers, especially big institutional money managers, do get evaluated every quarter. And, uh, you know, a big fund, a big pension fund or endowment fund or something will have several managers typically managing different parts of the portfolio. And they all get evaluated at the end of each quarter, and some of some of those funds will replace managers, you know, who are at the bottom of the performance table. And that's just at the, the end of a
1: quarter. That's just the investment side. I think the business side is even worse. I think a big part of the reason we've had so many of the unicorns, the billion-dollar private companies, avoiding going public, is it's not just that you don't want the pressures of the market and having to perform. It's you don't want the pressures of a second by second. Having to perform of your employees seeing oh our stock's up oh our stock's down God today I feel like shit oh my God the stock's up today oh but now it's down but we got to make sure that we optimize for this week this month this year how do you build towards something that's going to last a decade ten decades that we have so much shorter stays on the Fortune 500 list. Not all Mm -hmm. of that can just be technological advancement. Do you think some of that potentially is the way that we have to think about the market as the market accelerates?
0: Well, you know, uh, you're right. I agree that uh, being a public company has all kinds of uh, disadvantages. You know, obviously, you get the advantage of a big bunch of capital that comes in from, uh, you know, a, a lot of investors. but. The disadvantages are very considerable, and so the number of publicly traded companies we have today uh, has been declining for years. We have thousands fewer publicly traded companies than we did 20 years ago, and that's part of the reason, you know, because it has disadvantages. And I have heard, you know, at CEO conferences, I have heard the leaders of big private equity firms saying to a room full of CEOs, hey, you guys. Come why don't you come over and work for us? You know you're a public company CEO. It's hell, right? You're doing these earnings calls every quarter. you're on all under all kinds of pressure. come over and work for us. you have you put all of that behind you and um you know there's a lot of uh, uh, attraction in that um so it, that is that is absolutely true and there there are all kinds of reasons actually for for the decline in publicly traded. Companies and besides, you know, a lot of unicorns don't need the public's money. You know, they just don't. There's a lot uh, of money.
1: There's a lot of money out there. How that changed the dynamics with these hundred billion dollar funds, et cetera, coming into yeah. the game?
0: Yeah, it, it's well, it, it has. You're right. There's a ton of money out there looking for a, a home, looking for something to be invested in, and we are seeing some of these huge funds not being able to find enough good investments. And we've even seen examples of them giving money back to the investors, which they don't really want to do, but they don't want to put that money into bad investments either. So that, that there is a huge amount of capital in the world, and that is one of the big forces uh, shaping the whole, the whole world, uh, the, certainly the whole business world and finance world, but the whole world. There is just a huge amount of capital available. There's never been anything like this, and it's all looking for a home. And um, it's it really changes the uh, the relationships. Uh, Financial capital for 500 years since the Renaissance, financial capital has been the scarce resource in business. That's what you needed in order to grow and succeed. And it really isn't the scarce resource anymore. I mean, obviously you need some, but. Relative to the size of a business, you don't need nearly as much as you used to need. And that has changed all kinds of stuff.
1: Is that part of the winner-take-all dynamic? Uh,
0: It fits into it, yeah, because so many companies, so many businesses today, by their nature, just don't require a lot of physical capital. You know, they just don't. I mean, if you look at the list of the most valuable companies by market cap, I think the top four or five are all technology companies, most of which, like Microsoft and Google and Facebook, make nothing physical at all or virtually nothing. Uh, What they sell is software in one form or another. What they're selling is essentially pure thought. You don't need a lot of capital to do that. You need money to pay a lot of smart people, but you don't need a lot of capital. And so uh, it, it be, once you build up a, a leading position in, in that environment, it becomes very difficult for anyone to displace you. And that's the winner-take-all phenomena that we're seeing across industries. Once somebody or one player or a few players get really big, It becomes very difficult to displace them.
1: Yeah, and we were talking about this earlier with big tech and regulation. There's not great rules in terms of breaking up monopolies that are not deemed monopolies, but are very much so monopolies.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the antitrust laws, you know, well, began in the late 19th century for a world in which you know railroads and steelmakers were the giants. That's a world that we're not in anymore.
1: Speaking of today's world, what are your thoughts on China and what's been playing out?
0: Yeah, the I, it's clear that China. Well, it's, it's not just clear; it's it's beyond dispute uh, that China has huge ambitions um, and has a longer term view to get to a, uh, to return to a topic we were just talking about. Has has a longer term view than any other country, and. You know, this is a country that has 4,000 years of a continuous culture. No other country on earth has that. To them, 100 years or 200 years is the blink of an eye. And so what they are looking to do is to grow economically, to grow militarily, so that by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the revolution... Uh, they will be the most powerful country on Earth, militarily the most powerful country. They never say anything about this, of course. Uh, But it's clear to the analysts who study these things that that is their plan. They have gigantic ambitions, and understandably so. The big questions are, one, can they keep... The engine turning. Can I? Can they keep progressing in a system that is just fundamentally not democratic? Uh, the recent trouble in Hong Kong, recent and continuing unrest in Hong Kong, is you know. Can that be a sign of things to come? It certainly could be. So can they do this, you um, know, in, in a way that? does not require being a democracy. And that's, that's a big open question. It's, the answer is not clear. The other big question is their population is going to peak and begin to decline uh, before 2049, well before 2049 comes around. And they will go into this very difficult situation where there are more and more old people having to be supported by fewer and fewer young people. And what is that going to do to their economy? Uh, The growth has to slow down, which is fine. But could it slow down drastically? Could there be huge social disruption um, as a result of this? Uh, To me, those are the the two big threats to China's very ambitious uh, future.
1: Make a speculation about the democracy aspect. Is democracy necessary?
0: It just becomes... It's very hard for
1: me to believe. You don't
0: want to. We don't want to, right? Well, I don't want to believe, but it's as the as the country becomes more prosperous, it's hard for me to believe that they will stand for not not having a say, for not having a vote. Um, Hong Kong. I don't know what's going to happen in Hong Kong, but it's it's difficult for me to believe. That, that they can they can stay the way they are while while at the same time achieving the economic progress they intend to achieve. I I, I just think the two are incompatible. Why would, do you think they can keep the lid on? Well, just to
1: play devil's advocate, let's say yeah. let's say you see China and China keeps on the economic powerhouse game, so to speak. They make yes. it they make it through some of the some of those downturns. And right. when what how I would think about it is you have two sports teams. One of them is killing it and winning the championship every year, but right. they ha- they have less say in who gets to play, what the strategies are, et cetera. The other right. champion the other team gets complete and total freedom and they're the suckers that get kicked around. right well, I mean if you care, if you compare the performance of the American government and the Chinese government right now, I, I, yeah. I think that's a pretty fair analogy. and yeah. the American one certainly doesn't seem to be getting more promising. Are you better right. off playing the game? This is as devil's advocate perspective. Yeah, I
0: understand. I uh, understand.
1: Like, for instance, I, there's a million. The, the U.S. has the provably worst democracy, form of democracy in the world. <laughs> but that's, that's a whole nother can of worms. But right. do you want to switch to an inferior system Right. if it's going to cause you trouble?
0: Yeah, I, I think the only reason the Chinese would switch to the inferior democratic system is to avoid trouble. Uh, And when I say that I think that, you know, they will have to move toward democracy, I do not at all think, I mean, all evidence would say they're very unlikely to switch to any kind of democracy that resembles closely a Western democracy, either our system or a parliamentary system or any of the models that we know most familiarly. It could well be that they make partial moves in that direction as a way to quell the unrest. And, you know, and that might work. They they always make a point of saying that they are adopting this or that system with Chinese characteristics. And that's I think that's what they're going to have to do is move toward democracy with Chinese characteristics. And I don't even know what that means, except that it's not going to be anything that we're very familiar with. And and nor do I know if it's going to work. But I I, I just have to think that they're going to have to uh, do something. They're going to have to make some kind of uh, conciliatory moves, uh, really just to keep the populace under control
1: you'd hope so they're moving towards a minority report world pretty quickly
0: yes they are they are they are absolutely
1: yeah it's hard to it's hard to balance those two of economic progress and actual individual rights they mm-hmm. are very much uh a crossing a crossing line so to speak yeah it'll be uh it'll be interesting as well to see how things play out with europe and other areas as they see china's progress happening you've got china and their silk road they're certainly trying yep. to encourage other people to adopt
0: a more Chinese model. Absolutely. And that is, uh, the, yeah, that, that, the Belt it, and this Road initiative. Is the next initiative. Cold War? Uh, well, you know, in some sense, it's already starting. And so I, I think the answer is yes, it could very well be. I mean, it's not a secret, you know. I mean, it's clear that they are attempting to uh, extend their influence very, very far, all the way across Asia well, you know, and it, then into Europe and and absolutely into Africa, where, as you know, they've been extending their influence for decades without people in the West paying that much attention. But, the, you know, they they can't hide this. Uh, you know, it's all happening in plain sight. And... Is that a
1: bad the, thing, though? Let's play devil's advocate. They're,
0: yeah, yeah. Is that a bad thing?
1: They're doing well, it in a positive way of helping versus uh, a takeover way, which we've seen in the past.
0: Well, I, I mean, I've certainly heard different versions, uh, uh, ver- different perspectives on that. Uh, because yes, they they will go help a country develop, but you know they they they're not doing it uh, for free. I mean, they uh, they want loyalty, and they and frankly, a lot of it is financial as well. They will lend the money to the developing country and. Expect it to be paid back oh, on generous terms. And, um, th- you know, so the, the, they will have, as a result, a great deal of influence in these countries, which is entirely understandable. But that's part of the model. They provide the financing, and they thus have a tremendous amount of influence within the country. And so, you know, th- th- they, I mean, it's... Doesn't need to be said, but they don't do this uh, out of the goodness of their hearts. No country uh, would do something like this uh, just to, to be wonderful. They expect to gain, they expect benefits for themselves, and uh, it can be all kinds of things, but um, clearly that's what they're doing. I mean they need the natural resources that are in Africa and um, you know and they're they're getting them.
1: Yeah, it's friends with benefits. Is there, yeah. any, is there any way for us to avoid a shooting war? You, you see when you have a superpower being replaced by an up-and-comer, right. there there's essentially always or almost always a war. But right. it, is that inherent or is that because people expect conflict and thus create it?
0: Yeah, Well, of course, that is the whole question behind the book, uh, The Thucydides Trap, uh, which I haven't read, I'm sorry to confess, by Graham Allison uh, at Harvard. And uh, as I said, I haven't read the book. My understanding is that in the book, he outlines, I don't know, six or eight or ten examples of the situation you just described. There's a dominant power and there's a rising power that seems to threaten the dominance of the dominant power. And what he shows is that in a certain number of those cases, it did result in war. But in a certain number of other cases, it didn't result in war. And so I think the point of his book is to identify what the keys were to avoiding war because he sees exactly what you describe a world with a clearly dominant power, the United States, and a rising power that is the clear threat to the dominance of the dominant power, the clear threat being China. So yeah, you know, can we avoid a real, as you say, a shooting war? And Allison's argument is, yes, you can avoid it, but that doesn't mean you will.
1: I don't think the splinter net and the economic Hmm. war that we're having these days is helping. I think being more intertwined, not less, is probably beneficial. I. I agree. What is the future yeah. of education?
0: That's a hard question. Uh, it's obviously going to continue to be enormously valuable, but the fact that I even have to say that tells tells us something. You mentioned much earlier uh, the sort of education inflation—the fact that it takes a bachelor's degree now to get what used to require only a high school diploma. It, the the big uh, lesson of the 20th century, which was that getting a college diploma pays off. It's it's it, it pays you a lot. Uh, it has remained true, but it looks less and less true. And I'm not suggesting that people don't go to college, but what our educational institutions teach is just going to have to change. The way they teach it is going to have to change. I guess maybe that's my my fundamental answer that the way institutions teach what they teach, and to whom they teach it uh, is going to have to change dramatically. And if you want to see an example of what I think the future of education is, check out the introductory computer science course at Harvard. Now, for many decades, the number one most popular course at Harvard, year after year after year, was the introductory economics course. Last year, it wasn't. It was the introductory computer science course. And if you look at that, and I think it's true again this year, although I don't know if we have the final figures. But uh, if you look at that course, it is a completely different creation from any course you've ever taken. It's a lot of it takes place online. There's only one lecture a week, which is a very polished performance by a young professor who wears jeans and a black turtle, a black T-shirt. And you don't have to go to the lecture because you can always watch it online. At the same time, there is a tremendous amount of person-to-person social interaction. They have dozens of assistants in this course who have many, many hours available to help people in person. And there are other social events built into this course. There's a big hackathon at the end of the semester. There's a big fair uh, where everybody shows off their final project. Uh, There are dinners and lunches. So it's it's heavily online, but it's also heavily person-to-person social. In addition, this course, which is called CS50, Computer Science 50, CS50, you can take CS50 for free online uh, at the EdX, you know, uh, online web uh, course website. You know, you're not going to get credit at Harvard for it, but anybody, and that is the number one course on the EdX. Uh, website. You can take it for free. This is a phenomenon. Uh, the people who take it have described it as, you know, a lifestyle, a cult. It really engages people, and it's hard. P- you know, you, you, skeptics could look at it and say, Oh, I see. You know, it's just a university or a professor trying to coddle students and get good ratings from the students. Well, it does get very good readings, but it is incredibly demanding. Students are spending, by midterm, uh, the average student is spending something like 12 hours a week on the problem sets. Another, uh, you, I'll stop after this, but another unique and previously unheard of fact thing about this course, it's taught same course, same professor simultaneously at Harvard and Yale. It never happened before. It's hugely popular at both universities. If you want to know the future of education, just get online and check out CS50.
1: And to add to that, the future of education, the price tag is also going to change as well, or it's going to implode. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's right. The price tag. And, and by the way, you know, Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Princeton, those are, you know, the, the price tag is very high, but very few of the students are paying the sticker price. At most, at other, because those schools have so much money that, you know, they can make sure every great student they want will go there and they'll pay. They, the university will pay to make it happen. The great majority of schools, however, can't do that. And the, you're right, the the, the current exorbitant cost of college is unsustainable.
1: Also, the uh, insider trick for people that are looking at colleges, tell them you want a scholarship. The average price people are paying is 50% less than whatever the sticker price is. They're giving right. it to everyone and over-inflating right. like used car salesmen. Jeff, yep. before you tell people where to find you about the books and all the good stuff, I want yep. you to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action. It can be anything. What would it be and why?
0: My call to action would be interact with other humans in the richest possible way. And that means see people person to person, face to face, whenever you possibly can. If you can't do that, call them on the phone. If you can't do that, email them. If you can't do that, text them. But don't make text your primary option. Make it your last option. Our lives are going to become miserable if we lose the interpersonal interaction that, that we are built as human beings, we are hardwired as human beings to value that. And so am I, why am I making that my call to action? A, because it's you'll be happier. You will be a better human being, a happier per- person. And everyone you connect with will be a happier, better person. So, I really do find, I do believe this is critical to creating a better world.
1: Emojis are a terrible replacement for emotions. <laughs> Jeff, thanks for coming on. Where can people find you? Make your pitch. What's the spiel? Where are you at?
0: Yeah, uh, it's very simple. It's jeffcolvin.com. The only unsimple part is how you spell Jeff because it's G-E-O-F-F. So, it's G-E-O-F-F, Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N. JeffColvin.com And then you can find out about the books, the speaking, everything else.
1: If anything, that makes it nice, easy, and unique for you. You don't have to worry about competition on the name.
0: (laughs) That's true.
1: Thanks for coming today, Jeff. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you, Matt. If you guys liked it, check this out. Jeff has some great books. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast, Disruptors.fm. Share this around with a friend. And if you love us, then share it around with like 17 of your best and closest friends, because that's the biggest, most important thing you can do for helping us make this into a movement towards a hopefully better world. So thanks. And thanks, Jeff. You bet. Awesome. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day.